0: Hello and welcome back to the Great Woman Artists Podcast with me, Katie Hessel. Last week we interviewed the trailblazing artist Tracy Emin, so don't miss out if you haven't listened already. And today I couldn't be more excited to be sharing a conversation with the brilliant painter Amy Sherald. But just before we get to the interview, I am delighted to say that this episode is generously supported by Christie's Auction House in anticipation of their exciting upcoming auctions this October, the Modern British and Irish Art Evening and Day. Sales will be available to view in person at their London Gallery Space on King Street from the 15th to the 19th of October. With free entry, Christie's invites you to discover masterpieces by pioneering women artists, including Barbara Hepworth, Marlo Moss, Elizabeth Frink, Bridget Riley, and more. In Paris on the 20th of October, the avant-garde, including Thinking Italian auction, offers wonderful highlights, including a painting by Joan Mitchell, a sculpture by Nikki de Sanfal and Alighiero Boetti's Pink Mapper, Woven by women in Afghanistan, the piece is the first of Boetti's mappers not to feature a blue sea after the weavers ran out of this color. Now to Amy Sherald, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello everyone, and welcome to The Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. Some of you might know me from The Great Women Artists, an Instagram account I set up in October 2015, which celebrates female artists on a daily basis, ranging from young graduates to old masters. Well in a similar fashion to the Instagram this podcast is all about celebrating female artists from a variety of backgrounds and histories and I'm so excited to be interviewing artists on their career or artists, writers, curators or general art lovers on the woman artist who means most of them. What I want this podcast to do is celebrate female artists in all different capacities so you the listener can gain a look into the greatest female artists working now or from art history. I'm so excited to say that my guest on the Great Women Artists podcast is one of the most acclaimed painters working in the world right now, Amy Sherald. With their striking elegance and commanding yet inviting gazes, Amy Sherald's subjects, standing against bright monochromatic backgrounds, exude grace, dignity, power and joy. Unrooted in time, place or space, they feel at once familiar yet utterly otherworldly as they glow in hues of gold, pinks, blues and oranges, often meeting our gaze with their dazzling aura. Cheryl through figurative painting documents the contemporary African-American experience in the United States by engaging with the traditions of photography and portraiture she opens up discussions about who has been immortalized and who has been able to write paint and dictate these narratives. The artist has said the works reflect a desire to record life as I see and as I feel it. My eyes search for people who are and who have the kind of light that provides the present and the future with hope. Born in Columbus, Georgia, Sherald received her MFA in painting from Maryland Institute College of Art and BA from Clark Atlanta University. And in 2018, was selected by the first lady, Michelle Obama, to paint her portrait. Now in some of the most prestigious museum collections in the world, we meet Cheryl today in London at Hauser & Worth, where she has just opened her first ever European solo exhibition, The World we make. Amy Sherald, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing great.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here.
0: Thank you so much for coming on. It is such an honor to speak with you. And whenever I see your work, I am dazzled by your subjects, beauty and dignity. Although paintings are still and silent, there is so much life in them. It is as though a theatrical scene has played out, but we are left with the figure and it is them who we are invited to meet and contemplate. What sort of atmosphere do you hope to create in a painting?
1: Honestly, my goal is to leave the atmosphere behind, I guess. If I'm painting, I do not like to put the figure in context. I like the viewer to be able to project their own narrative into that space wherever they are, whether it be a color or whether it be the sky. So when I work and when I was transitioning from doing the smaller works to the larger works, I had to resolve the problem of background and placement of the figure And so I use low horizon lines. And in this exhibition, I use the color blue over and over again in many different ways to work out the environment, but then also to ground the figure in some of the works. And then this blue theme is really running through the whole show. You know, blue symbolizing hope and healing and spirituality, the sky, the ocean, and just openness and freedom, I think are the underlying themes of the show.
0: Totally. I mean, when you are confronted with that beautiful diptych of the motorbikers, just the fact that the blue kind of washes over you, it's this incredible sensation. Mm -hmm. In the second space as well, what's amazing is that you have this dark background and then you meet these figures and they're almost like entering our realm or we're entering their realm. I mean, what sort of atmosphere do you want to create in the space? Because to me, some of these works almost feel like a kind of religious
1: experience. I can appreciate that. The portraits are quiet. The second space is painted a dark gray color, and you really feel like you're embraced by the works, right? You walk in and you can be quiet, and it's more of a meditative experience than the other space. And it's more intimate, and so the smaller portraits are in that room for a reason, I think. And I want the viewer to have an intimate experience with these paintings. And the other way is that I hang the paintings lower than most institutions or or galleries do because I do believe that something happens physiologically that doesn't happen when you're looking up at something. You just feel disconnected, and this is about one human speaking to another human. And so I think that space was perfect for the smaller works to provide that kind of environment.
0: Yeah, because I remember the first time I actually think I actually saw maybe one of your paintings in the flesh for the first time was last December at LACMA's Black American Portraits when Mm -hmm. the Obama portraits were on view, and I was completely struck by the Michelle Obama portrait being that low. I mean, at first a bit disorientated because I'd just never seen that before, but then suddenly, (laughs) when actually you look at someone and they're on your level, it's like we can enter each other's realms. It's like this amazing conversation.
1: Yeah. Did it, did it really throw you off?
0: Well, I didn't expect it because, yeah. I mean, you know, when you look at this portrait and I'd seen so many pictures of it, for me, you know, she's like an icon. She's the kind of person who is immortalized in these paintings. Yeah. Yet she kind of invited us into her
1: realm. She did. And, you know, when you look at a lot of these historical paintings, they're all very high mm. because they're also in these older rooms and the, the Wayne's coating is usually at the bottom. So they have to hang them higher, sometimes even higher than what you would normally hang. And that's not who she is. And that's not how I wanted the work to be represented. So the museums were really great with working with my requests because I was pretty adamant about that.
0: No, it makes such a difference and completely transports the whole experience of viewing a painting, which is almost just as important as the painting itself. But I'm fascinated by this idea of portraiture, this historicization of it and the traditions. I love this quote by you. You said, you know, for me, it comes down to painting the work that I want to see exist in the world. I understand my power as a figurative painter and someone who makes images because images are how we experience one another. What do you think is the power of portraiture and figurative painting?
1: It changes spaces. It is political, I think at least for me as a black female painter, because the black body is political, right? Even if it's not my intention for the work to be political, it's a political statement to have these paintings hanging on the walls of institutions because we all recognize the history and the absence of of our narrative within the art canon. And I always say, like, when you think about art history from the beginning of time to cavemen and women painting their portraits on cave walls to present, and then you... You look at the beginning of, let's say, exhibitions for Black Americans in the, in the 1930s and 40s. It's stunning. That was less than 100 years ago. And so like there's centuries between the beginning of art for most and then the beginning of art for us. And I feel that every day when I'm going into my studio, the urgency to try to reclaim some of that space. And through figuration, because you're looking at a person... It's different and reads differently, I think, than an abstract painting might in a room when you're on a pursuit to diversify and to place figures within a conversation where they never existed.
0: And do you think about people, I guess, of all different ages? Like I've heard you talk about this idea of like seventh graders going to a school trip and seeing themselves in that portrait. Do you think about the impact that that's going
1: to have? I do, because I grew up and I didn't have that. I just say I was lucky enough that there was an artist out there that decided to do a self-portrait of himself as a black man. Had I not seen that painting, I mean, I guess I would have come across something else at some point. But that moment for me was a life-changing moment for a little girl. And I think I think it's underestimated how important representation is. I think people take for granted that you don't feel like you belong in spaces if you don't see yourself represented in those spaces. I went to the National Gallery once in D.C., and I saw a gold relief of, I think it was General Sherman and his soldiers. And the soldiers walking behind him were African Americans. And I just remember thinking, I wonder what my life would feel like if every single statue that I ever walked by that was like, towering over me in all these different public spaces looked like me. Because in that moment, just seeing that one little thing, it changed the way I felt in that moment instantaneously. Like I said, I think people take for granted that representation of men in history and specifically white men and I think it psychologically can affect me as a black woman, as a black person, you as a woman. It's it's interesting to me.
0: It's such a fascinating thing that you just raised because, I mean, why has one section of society been able to dictate all these statues and everything? I mean, how have we left out everyone else? Yeah. And it's insane.
1: It is insane.
0: I I was so excited downstairs to see just this, beautiful painting of these two male sailors kissing and it really is sort of elevated on the scale of these you know old masters and it really got me thinking that this idea of like the kiss in art history you know we see it the whole time yet how has it got to 2022 and this is the first time I've ever seen a portrait of two black male figures Mm -hmm. kissing
1: yeah it's crazy (laughs) But everybody needs love and I'm here to give it. You know, that's what I say. Um, It's important. We're having really important conversations now. I don't know about here, but in the States, I mean, they're really cracking down on what can be discussed in classrooms in regards to sexuality. And I think that museums are the last frontier that we have to kind of create the visibility that is necessary to open up space for people that are in same-sex relationships and that are non-binary conforming because the level of violence inflicted on these communities, it's because, I think, of a lack of exposure, right? Like, if you don't know about it, if you never learn about it and you see something that's different from you, then you're not open to it. And I think you have to have these conversations early on for people to understand that people are just people or kids to understand that people are just people and that love is is love
0: yeah and we think about all the romantic relationships that have been immortalized or historicized in books or films or tv shows or paintings yeah and actually i can't believe what's got to now you know someone made a really important point earlier that perhaps they can also evoke equestrian portraits or they really exude this nobility do you think you're trying to sort of upend or rework european portraiture do you think about that
1: not consciously, but because you know art history, it's hard not to like make those relations. <laughs> My good friend Gehende Wiley has done a really good job at taking European history and like putting it on its back and spinning it around, even. And, <laughs> um, but because I know art history, there's a lot of ways to represent the history of portraiture, which is European, without actually painting a horse. So for me, the bikes was a way to represent or at least just tilt my head towards that without fully taking it on because the way the bikes are tilted up in the air, the way that a horse would be on its hind legs, that's what really reminded me of that. And for those guys, like the sense of power and domination is real, just as it was for these men that you see in art history riding horses.
0: But I'm also fascinated by this idea of like, you know, your work radiates this joyousness Mm -hmm. as well. This colour like pulsates off the canvas. I almost feel like I have this pink glow when I'm looking at like a painting that has like a pink monochromatic background. Mm -hmm. There are so many elements of your work, whether it be the expression or the colour palette. How do you want your sitters or subjects to be
1: perceived? Just as simply as they are, as simply as I've painted them. I want them to be perceived in a, in a universal way because it's not a singular conversation and the conversation doesn't always have to be about identity. It doesn't always have to be about race. It doesn't always have to be about gender. I think sometimes we need to step away from that and step into ourselves. I think that's healing as well and really important.
0: Yeah, I couldn't help but when I was looking at this beautiful portrait of your uh, nephew, Keith Jr., at this amazing sense of time in your paintings, because in a way, they feel strangely cinematic. It's as though we've kind of lifted this figure from a film or there is so much kind of theatricality to it. Like I can imagine like a movie soundtrack going on with like those two sailors were kissing or something. But this idea that this boy, we meet him and he's on the sort of cusp of adolescence and adulthood, even though you're looking at him for like, you know, a minute or something, you can find so many different expressions within him. There's a nervousness and then a kind of Mm -hmm. confidence as well.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's interesting and I think when people ask me like, how do you pick your models? What you just saw or like the things that I can pick up on that I know somehow transcend the work, right? They go from the model to the painter, from the painter to the brush, and the brush to the canvas. Those are the characteristics that I think make the portraits really special. And it's why I spend so much time looking for the right model or the right person to paint. That really captivates my interest and my imagination. He did exactly that, yeah. What's also quite funny is he's about 16, and... In a way, I hadn't
0: really thought about sixteen year old boys in the sense that when I'd ever watched like teen movies when I when I was younger, they'd always be the older guys. But obviously like me as an adult now, it's like, oh my God, they're kids. (laughs) And actually suddenly it made me think about my time on this earth and being like, oh wow, I'm actually the adult in this situation.
1: You recognize your age. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, oh God. (laughs) I'm not that like fourteen year old girl anymore. (laughs) No. No, we're not Molly Ringwald anymore. It's not the Breakfast Club. (laughs) unfortunately but do you think about tapping into his mind as well i do but i do it without speaking to them there's not a lot of conversation that happens between myself and the model even when i know the model it's really the energy that i'm trying to tap into and the small nuances of their facial expressions and like how to create a psychology within the painting with those small kinds of gestures
0: you totally see it it's it's amazing they're like these molding moving figures when you look at the canvas
1: yeah I mean I would love to see them in a the movie I just have to say <laughs> like if Wes Anderson is out there listening he can take all of them write a storyline and let's see him come to life
0: oh, but you can literally imagine with like the male sailors it's like amazing like Italian classical soundtrack going on when yeah they
1: kiss. it would be so much fun it's so romantic as well yeah <laughs>
0: But I'd love to sort of go back to your beginnings as well. You were born in Columbus, Georgia in 1973. Uh, Your father was a dentist and always encouraged medicine. I'm fascinated to know, was art always present in your life when you were growing up?
1: It wasn't in a real way, no. I found out later in my 20s, or like my late 20s, that my mom painted. What? Right. I found out even later that the painting that I grew up with in our kitchen was a painting that she did. It was like a watercolor of a still life of bottles. It's a beautiful painting. And I thought it was something that she just bought and hung in the kitchen. No. So it's in me and I see myself as like a completion of her intentions maybe that she never got to become that artist. I mean in her time when she was born becoming an artist wasn't even a thought that was conceivable. I don't know why they just don't talk. Like my parents, they just don't talk about the past. It's all about the present. It's all about the future. And so it was something that I've always been naturally drawn to since I was a young child. And my mom, you know, always tells people that, you know, I was in the second grade and I was always drawing and illustrating like my vocabulary words, sentences and things like that. So I feel like it chose me. I don't feel like I chose it. It was just like this thing I honestly feel like I was born to do. And it's always been a focus, even though I didn't understand how to make it happen. You know, when you're growing up, I was always attracted to people that were like different. You know, growing up in a small town where everybody is either Christian, they're black, or they're white, like it wasn't a lot of diversity. And so when I came across people like Cindy Lauper or punk rock kids or people that were living outside of the box, I was so into that because I didn't get to see that every day. And to me like that's what being an artist was until I got, you know, deeper into it. And then I realized like it's not about how you look or what you wear, it's about what you can make. And although I had very little exposure, I think that It doubles down on the affirmation that I'm supposed to be sitting here talking to you because it's not like my parents were like taking me to museums. You know, I see my colleagues and they have photographs of themselves in the MoMA and they're like eight, you know, (laughs) I, I like literally didn't have that. I had this story that I wanted to tell and I just kept pushing forward, even though sometimes blindly towards this goal. Somehow I got into graduate school. Because ignorance is bliss. And I, I got in and I was like, how do I even get into grad school? Like, this work that I'm making, these people are serious artists, you know? And in my mind, I was a serious artist. So there were a few learning curves, but I worked really hard and stayed true to myself and my goals. And that will take you everywhere you want to go. Definitely.
0: Have you always been interested in people then?
1: I think so, yeah. I oftentimes ask myself if I was born in. 1993 instead of 1973, would I be making the same work? And I'm not sure because life was very different then. I grew up, everything was like very book driven, right? You needed information. You had to go to book. There were no computers. Like I had a Tandy 2000 from Radio Shack, (laughs) but I mean, you had to basically code everything in order to like make it work. So my imagination as to what it meant to be an artist was that it was somebody who knew how to paint and draw the figure. So that's the only definition I had. And I love abstraction. Grace Hartigan, when I worked with her when I was in graduate school, is one of the great women abstract expressionists. And she influenced my work at that time. And I started to play around with like dripping and thin layers of paint and things like that. But the figure was always underneath it, even though it was veiled. It's always been the starting point for me. So I don't know if I can ever step away from that. I like to daydream about being like 80 years old and saying like, F it all. You know, I'm about to do this now. I'm going to be like the new Mark Rothko. Um, But I think with figuration, you almost know what to expect all the time. And I think what I crave is the ability to walk up to a canvas and not know what's next. But I don't know that I would do it very well if I if I did. I think there's a level of symmetry that's within abstract expressionism that when you see good work, you know it's good work, right? It's almost like it's a figurative painting without all of the signals of it being a human. And I just I think it's just really fascinating that kind of conversation that you have to have with yourself and like when to stop, because there is no natural stopping point. All the questions are very different. So I daydream about being an abstract painter when I'm like 80 years old
0: or <laughs> well, maybe you'll listen back to this when you're 80 years old happens, and be like, right? oh, I had that dream I had that dream but I'm interested in this idea of portraiture because I mean you did mention earlier that you did look at this self-portrait and I think it's the Beau Bartlett painting object mm-hmm. permanence which is a self-portrait by the artist I mean have you always done portraiture
1: yeah I mean when I, I started school I was pre-med oh wow yeah I was pre-med until I was a junior my father had his master's degree in biology, and he would tutor me and my sciences, but I just, you know, just not built for that. I'm built to be a doctor. I'm like great bedside manner, but biology is not my friend. Also, you
0: have that meticulousness with the paintbrush as well. which is quite Yeah, maybe I
1: I would have been a good surgeon. But when I decided to change my major, I didn't know what to paint, honestly. And I was having a conversation with my art teacher at the time. And he said, you know, you should start with yourself. Probably for the next 10 years, I did self-portraits, which is kind of crazy. It also started that way because I couldn't find any models that wanted to pose for me on campus. And for some reason at the time, the paintings that I was making were of nude women that were bald headed because at that time I had shaved my head, and they were kind of alien-like. It was almost like an illustration for an Octavia Butler book. And people kept telling me, like, you should read Octavia Butler. And I'm like, okay, whatever. And I never even did, but I was totally on the same wavelength with the science fiction field, even though I wasn't into science fiction. But it was a way for me to narrate a story that I kind of made up as I went. And then that just gradually evolved into what I'm doing now. But, I mean, there's 20 years in between that where you know, I had to make the decision that you have to be honest with yourself and tell yourself like, okay, the work that I'm making now is it good. And I think for me, like that was a big deal and then have to start over and like figure out where you're going to go from there. It's one of the hardest things I've ever done, but one of the best things that I've ever done too. Because if you're not willing to take those risks and ask yourself those questions, then you're not really working within an authentic place where you can step into your destiny in the right way. I'm totally all about that. Like if you're on your path, then things fall into place the way that you need them to. You just begin to trust that and you know it even when it feels like, okay, I don't know, this door may not open. So figuration for me has been a way for me to express myself, to explore my my upbringing in the South, almost like a journal. I think the first maybe like 10 paintings are almost like a journal of me processing growing up down there and my own identity and you know moving back there as an adult to care for family and realizing that parts of my identity were fully performative based on my environment which was really strange and that i felt differently about myself in the south i acted differently in the south because there's a different kind of awareness of like what people think of you growing up in a small town only black kid in the catholic school all of that was able to work itself out in the work and in these figures that I was putting out in the world. Which also makes sense why there are so many dimensions
0: to these figures as well, and this idea of performance. I mean, in a way, they are performative Mm -hmm. as well. They're also
1: performing for us. Yeah, and they're watching you perform. Yeah, (laughs) that's true, that's true.
0: But this idea that they are sort of on this threshold between like fantasy and reality,
1: which you've said before, I mean, what sort of space do you want them to exist in? I think the space that they exist in is... My reality. I mean, they're citizens of Amy Sherrill land. And, you know, I have these army of soldiers that are going out in the world. But it is a reality. I call it an interior reality. But it is very much about the here and now and the present moment, if that makes sense.
0: And how do you feel when you're painting these
1: figures and almost sort of crafting them from your hands? Oh, like a maestro. No, I'm kidding. I'm <laughs> kidding. <laughs> you know, every time I started painting, I'm like, can I do this again? Like, I feel like I'm starting over. It feels, I don't know, I feel like I'm living in my destiny. Honestly, it feels like I wake up every day and I feel lucky to be able to do this and that mm-hmm. I found my visual language. So it's the one way that I know how to express myself and communicate what I can't always put into words.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. What's amazing is that until 2011, I mean, age 38, I mean, you were still waiting tables and you weren't even an artist full time, which is incredible. Yeah.
1: I mean, mean, technically, I say I was I was working 8 a.m. to 2 a.m. and then I would go to work from like 3 a.m. to midnight. And then I would just like work during the day, but not make it enough to like make a living.
0: But I just think that's such an incredible story of hope in terms of that daily grind of just like, this is what I want to do. I mean, how was that time for you and how did you actually then convert it into a full-time profession?
1: I knew that it was time to leave my work. And even though I didn't have a plan and I didn't have any money, I just knew it was time. Things kind of start to pick up, but they're not quite there. But you know that they won't get there unless you pour 100% of yourself into it. And you're already pouring 100% of yourself into it, but you have to fully commit to it, I think, which means leaving behind a level of comfort that most people really can't live without. I mean, so it was two long years of not knowing what was going to happen next. Little things would happen. Like, I quit my job. I didn't have any money. I was lucky to have, like, a house-sitting job, so I really only had to worry about paying my rent at my studio and managing this ongoing renovation project at this home. And the first thing that happened was being chosen for this, um, it's called a Mosaic Project, and it's like a program at the Pennsylvania College of Art and Design where they bring in artists of color to like have an exhibition, do a talk. And I think you get paid $2,500, right? And I'm like, I'm rich, you know? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because like at that point in time, I would get down to like $50. I'm like, what's going to happen next? Where is it going to come from? And you just have to keep pushing forward. I tell people, I don't know if it makes sense. I don't know whether it's bad advice. But for me, if you're not 100% focused on something and if you're not so desperate and like not in a bad way, but just like desperate to make it happen, then it never quite gets there because you're not manifesting it in the same way as if there's no backup plan. When there's no backup plan, like you start to think You know what I mean? You're like, I have to make this happen because I don't have anything to fall back on. And it's those kinds of moments that I think make the difference between those that make it and those that don't outside of like just right place, right time. Yeah. I think that's so
0: inspiring. This idea that you just, it's the only option Just take that risk. And I always think like
1: you may as well just try. Yeah, it's true. I mean, if you don't, you never know what would have happened. But obviously
0: for you, incredible things started happening in terms of opportunities. You became the first woman as well as the first African-American person to win the Smithsonian National Portrait Gallery's outwin Boochever Portrait Competition. And you won this for your painting, Miss Everything. Tell me about this painting and why do you think it was this painting that resonated?
1: I have no idea, but I love the judges because they love the work. <laughs> um, they saw my vision. It's a painting of a, of a young girl around... 14 years old. She's holding a teacup. She has on a white glove. She has on a red fascinator and she has on a dress that is made out of polyester. You don't see the texture of the dress, but I think you can kind of feel the stiffness of it. And there's polka dots on one side. So I think at that time I was thinking about Alice in Wonderland for some reason and like obsessing over some parts of that story that was part of the reason. The title is Miss Everything, but parenthetically, there's another title, it's Unsuppressed Deliverance. So the painting is about, for me, letting go, letting go of the gaze. And I think the gaze is something that I really heavily considered when I first started making these paintings because I wanted the viewer to be in direct eye contact of the figure and the painting. But then I also essentially wanted to let go of being looked at at the same time, right? And what that feels like, letting go of like this kind of self-awareness. I can say I have felt it being in the room and like being the only woman or like being the only black person in a room. Like you feel yourself being watched and then you watch yourself being watched, right? Mm-hmm. It's like if we were in a room full of men, like all of a sudden your inner eye is yeah. like looking at them look at you and in your mind's eye – you are envisioning what they're seeing. So like letting go of that. I think that's something that I grew up overtly aware of. And I think that's part of where the performative aspect of my identity kicks in. Is like just from my, you know, my parents and my mom telling me like, people are going to be looking at you. They're going to be watching you. You can't act this way. Like you have to do this and this is how you have to be. And that level of self-awareness, like once you tap into it as a child, like it kind of never leaves you. And it's left her. She doesn't care anymore. And so um, that's what that piece is about. And, you know, I, I applied for that competition, I, not even thinking I would ever, I would really? ever win. Yeah. Not, I was like, $50, <laughs> man, I don't want to pay this. But it was those moments. Like the first moment was winning jurors pick of New American Paintings. That kicked me up like a level, Right. And then the National Portrait Gallery competition kicked me up to the next level. After that, it was Michelle's portrait. You just got to keep working. (laughs) If you don't keep working, you won't be there when the opportunity comes. I mean, how did it feel to be told that you were going to be the official portraitist of Michelle Obama? Exciting. I mean, a little bit stressful, but mostly exciting. (laughs) Yeah, it was a great moment. It was validating because I live with a healthy amount of self-doubt. So any kind of self-doubt that I had in that moment just kind of disappeared you know what I mean I'm like okay I think I do know what I'm doing like I think this work is important it does need to be seen and I worked really hard so I can take this on and this is for me this is my opportunity
0: and I always sort of think whenever I see that painting there are so many emotions going on in it just in terms of she invites us into her world she is also kind of untouchable but there's this wisdom and optimism as well. Mm-hmm. I think I get that with your painting. They're untouchable, but they're also real. Untouchable, that's interesting. Untouchable in what way? Just, I think, because they exist in another realm to us. They have this sort of grayish skin tone, yeah. and they're not quite in our world. But then again, they're also... They
1: exist in the heart realm.
0: Yeah, Totally. Yeah. But this idea that they're also, I mean, it's a bit like, you know, Barclay Hendrix or mm-hmm. when you look at paintings of saints from the 14th century or something. Yeah. It's that yeah. kind of like wholly untouchable, like yeah. regalness.
1: I love that. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> You've been very kind
0: and <laughs> participated in two shows that I put on this year. But one of them was the show that I curated with your great friend Deborah Roberts about collage, and like what collage means today. And I mean, this idea of like the multiplicity of a human figure or, I mean, I'm fascinated, like what does collage mean to you? And do you think collage is something that is present in 2022?
1: I think it's definitely present. What it represents very well to me is the deep psyche of what it means to be a human being, and like the movement of our brains, and how all these images are constantly going through our head all the time, even when we're not aware of it. And so, even with Deborah's work, it's not disfiguration, but I'll just say that I'm sure there's a better word for it. But the hands, one hand's bigger than the other hand, one eye's bigger than the other eye, and what she cuts out, it comes together in these really well orchestrated but awkward moments. And it resonates so deeply with me with like what it feels like to be human because we are for the most part broken up in all these little pieces, but we're still functioning some way and we're still whole in some way. But it makes me think of that, but then also the images that are flying by our head every day that we encounter through social media or TV or whatever and like how that sits with us without us even thinking about it or knowing it, like the subconscious. So like, yeah, I think collage really has a great way of representing like what the subconscious looks like. But, you know, since 2016 and these past six years, I mean, your style has and
0: your work has evolved so much from your exhibition in New York at Hauser and & Worth. And what I love about the title of this exhibition, The World We Make, it feels like a culmination of so much that,
1: you know, you've made for of us. Of world making. Yeah. Right. Yeah.
0: I mean, why did you choose that title?
1: I think that's why. I think we're living in this moment where so many things are changing and we have to take control of our destinies and make sure that our rights aren't taken away from us as women, as people. I think that's really what it was. As we walk beyond this moment, we have a a world to remake.
0: And how did you want people to feel coming to this exhibition in terms of it being also your first European solo exhibition?
1: I don't know whether I have a particular way that I want them to feel. I don't think it's changing because of the location, put it that way.
0: Mm. I guess it's just interesting, me being a British person and like growing up with British portraits. In a way, there was something that really struck me in the portrait of the two sailors kissing was that one of them is dressed as a sailor and one of them is dressed in his own clothes and he's got these beautiful pearls. But they kind of took me back to like Tudor painting and like Anne Boleyn's like, pearls or Mm. elizabethan's pearls or something and actually there was this amazing conversation with what's in the national gallery right now and what's in hauser and well i mean just because i've maybe grown up with it so much yeah
1: that's very true that's very true tell me more
0: like it's, it's a, such an interesting interesting conversation between British portraiture and American portraiture mm-hmm. because there are so many American symbols weaved within these paintings whether it be the clothing or the tractor or, or yeah. you know all these cultures that are very kind of inherently American but then, and
1: inherently European at the same time right
0: yeah yeah totally totally yeah. I guess it just in conversation with the National Gallery it reminds me of the sort of regalness of like Charles the first like his portraits or right I just feel like I'm so used to British and European portraiture that I can't help but make a but, read, in, but yeah. read that into
1: it it's similar in a lot of ways European portraiture wasn't my inspiration, photography was my inspiration and I think the same feeling that you got from those European portraits are aligned with the same feelings that I got from looking at these black and white photographs that I grew up with, you know it's regal, self-satisfied, dignified, those same words could be used. And I think that's why I'm so inspired by photography, because I didn't and don't have that history of painting, right, to look at and say, oh, look at, look at, you know, I don't know, give me a name, like, look at <laughs> Elizabeth uh, the Sir First. Tom Jones <laughs> in the year 1500 or yeah, whatever, yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah. For me and mine, like, that started after the invention of the camera, Because that's when we were able to become authors of our own narrative and get dressed up and have our portrait taken, not have it painted, but just have a picture taken. It's the same, but I guess that's why I don't directly draw that line, even though I'm a portrait painter. It's kind of crazy, but yeah. And what does portraiture mean to you in 2022? The conversation around representation, I think, is essential to it. But for me in 2022, I think, and especially with this exhibition, it's just a, it's a way to keep stories alive. It's a way to tell different stories. It's a way to world make. That's how I consider it, yeah.
0: Wonderful. Amy Sherald, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. We have one more question, okay. which is, uh, we always ask our guests, if there was a woman artist from history or from now who you'd most like to meet, who would it be and what would you say to them?
1: Ooh, that's hard. <laughs> I mean, the first two that I come, t- well, no, now it's three. So can I? Yeah, I don't know. So it'd be Artemisia Gentileschi. Yes. It would be Frida Kahlo. And it would be Alice Neal. <gasps> you
0: have that If beautiful- we can all sit
1: down and have dinner together, can you imagine that conversation?
0: Oh my God.
1: Yeah. So I don't know what I would say. I guess I would say thank you. And. Yeah. I don't know what I would say. That would be like, I mean, like, I think the pressure will be on, you know, I was like, oh, my God. Um, yeah, I love that quote those... that you use in the press release. You say from Alice
0: Neal, you say art is two things, a search for a road and a search for freedom.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that kind of like sums up how I feel about portraiture wonderful Amy
0: Sherald thank you so much for coming on the podcast thank you thank you all so much for listening to this episode of the Great Women Artists podcast with the staggeringly brilliant Amy Sherald I am completely in awe of her and her work and urge for anyone in London to visit her exhibition at Hauser & Worth which is on view for the next few months this episode was sound edited by the brilliant Nada Spinellage and research assistant was Viva Ruji if you have been enjoying these episodes please rate, review and subscribe Subscribe as it helps others find us. And of course, thank you so much for listening to The Great Women Artists Podcast with me, Katie Hessel.